0: If you're joining us for the first time or haven't been here in a couple of weeks, we are are at the end of our introduction to uh, our series, which we've titled, Take Good Care, Stewarding the Good Gifts of God's Creation. And one of the things that we noticed is that before we jump into the mechanics of stewardship, we should maybe lay a foundation of why. Why? And so we always go back to the beginning, the the first stories in Genesis, when we're asking the question, why? Uh, Why are we here? Who is God? What what does he have for us? And so we've just been doing a quick flyover of uh, the first four chapters. We'll finish it up here this morning. I'll tell you, I'm a little sad. It's been fun for me to be able to like do the deep dive. I'd actually like to go start over and do it again, and then do it again, and then do it again, and just see what would continue to come up as we uh, engage the text in the way that we've been doing that. And uh, so, hopefully, it's been good for you as well. As we go from here, we'll start to think about application of the why. And so we'll always be referring back to Genesis when we think about why we do certain things, why God calls us to do certain things. Um, But we've been just sort of laying the foundation. So I just want to do a quick review for those who have not been caught up of what we've uh, looked at so far. In the very beginning, we saw that God introduced himself. Uh, In the first chapter, we get a poem. We get uh, an expression a song of creation that expresses the majesty and the beauty and, and ties us into God's purpose for creation. It tells us about his plan. It talks about his power and his desire to bring life and beauty out of what we called chaotic nothingness. We saw that there was a very deliberate structure to the poem, and we paid attention to the rhythm of the literature, and it led us to conclude that at a, a very basic level... Humans were created to rest. That before we do anything for God, God delights in us just as we are. And chapter 2 gives us detail and shape to the garden. We kind of talked about it like building a home and then inhabiting a home. And in chapter 2, God fills the space that he built for himself, and then we also realize that he also has a place for us, that there is a special spot that we occupy in the narrative and in the purpose of creation. We saw that we are uh, literally the idols of God, that we are the ones who... Uh, image to creation what's going on in uh, God's world. And that we had a a really uh, important place that though we were created for rest, we also uh, recognize that there is work to be done. And so out of our resting, there is working. And chapter 2 shows us what it looks like as we expand and explore this bountiful garden. Immediately, though, we find an interloper in the story—a uh, voice, uh, actually walking, talking, reasoning serpent—who uh, calls us, uh, calls into question the goodness and the security of their relationship with God. They were naked and unashamed, but then something happened, and this this voice, this uh, deceiver, um, brings doubt that leads them down a path. That leads to the recognition of their nakedness, which until their eyes were opened, didn't seem like a problem. They hear God coming and they run and they hide and they make coverings for themselves. They are now afraid and they're ashamed. And so we pick up the story this morning from there. And as we have done uh, since the very beginning, I'm just going to invite you to close your eyes as I read the story and uh, listen to it maybe even as... And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you. Above all livestock and all wild animals, you will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains and childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So God, we come this morning uh, seeking wisdom from stories that have been told for thousands and thousands of years about who you are. And we find ourselves sitting in a particular place and time, each of us with things that are happening inside of us and around us. And we go back to the beginning to anchor ourselves in the truth of who you are and who we are. And we're reminded this morning that you don't give up. Your love never fails. It never gives up. It never runs out. And I thank you for this, these stories that remind us of just how far your grace stretches into the chaos. And so we just pray that it would stretch into our places wherever we find ourselves this morning. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, last week we looked at the story and... Um, gave ourselves permission to like step back and say, okay, is there anything here that seems unusual or difficult or strange or ambiguous? Is there anything that, as you were hearing the story this morning, come? Uh, did anything come up that you were like, huh, that's weird, or I hadn't seen that before? Have you ever thought about the sound of God's footsteps when he's walking in the garden? Like, what what does that sound like? Any other questions that you may have? Just shout them out. He was still there. Yeah. Maybe hiding in the bushes with them. I don't know. But I hadn't thought about that until just now. So God changes their wardrobe. And you could say, so you get the sort of the progression of what's going to happen now. They're getting ready to leave. Well, he tells them, I have to kick you out into the chaotic world outside of the garden. And then he gives them clothes that are fit for their new circumstance. Mm. That the chaos goes here and God goes there. And then the chaos will go here and God's going to go there. Mm. I don't want to give too much away. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, that's a remarkable act of grace. Um, Yeah. How about the where are you question. Does, does God not know where they are? It, I put them somewhere. Like, where are my keys? Where are those humans? What about the curse? Anything interesting about the curse that stands out? The serpent had legs. That's crazy, and it talked. The um, I've the, the curse is specific, right? Serpent, ground, not people. How familiar is the story to you, though? If you think about what's going on, and you just try to think in your memory, either yesterday or in your past years of life, where something similar may have happened to you, where um, you did something that you knew you did wrong, and you, you, you were in trouble. For instance, like, if you and your brother were roughhousing in the living room, and you knocked over the lamp that was your mom's favorite lamp, hypothetically, and it broke. And in its breaking, you uh, immediately know that you have done something wrong, whether it was on purpose or by accident, it doesn't matter. All of a sudden, there's this distress that rises up and so you grab the lamp and you put it back on the table and you recognize that it is not going to stand up and so you lean it against the wall and you run for your bedroom and you hope that she doesn't notice but then you hear her footsteps coming down the hallway boys boys where are you she knows where we are And we go double down under the covers and she opens the door and she said, does anybody know what happened to the lamp? And I say, "Murph, it was him, my brother. And this is a hypothetical story, of course. Um, But like we get the sense of what's going on here. We've all experienced some version of this story, even if we never got caught, right? Even if there were no immediate consequences to... Uh, the disobedience, whatever that might be, there is this sense of of uh, distress that happens when we violate a a clearly known boundary. It's it's so familiar, almost seems like what the author is trying to do is describe the human drama. Instead of giving us necessarily a historical snapshot of these two people and that tree and that serpent and those bushes, I think maybe what the author is trying to do is just say, stand back just a little bit and see if this doesn't fit you right now, human, wherever you find yourself. In his book, The Soul of Shame, Kurt Thompson identifies four movements of the progression from beloved... To shame, And they are obviously illustrated in this story. His four movements are doubt, distress, disintegration, and deficiency. If we go back to the dialogue that we looked at uh, last week between the woman and the sermon, we, we see it play out. It starts there. The first question is meant to create doubt in Eve's understanding of what she is and is not supposed to do. Did, did God really say And in that question, the possibility of her being wrong is introduced. She's taken back. She's put in a position of questioning her confidence in God. And that doubt leads to distress, which could explain why maybe she exaggerated the prohibition. Maybe she got nervous and she wasn't sure what was going on. And so she said, no, 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 we're not allowed to even touch the tree." Her own recollection of what was going on was failing her, and that distress leads her open to the possibility that God doesn't have her best interest in mind. He's holding out on you. The serpent sees the opportunity by offering her a way around that distress. She can do for herself what God apparently is not doing for her. And the suggestion is that she can be like God, putting her on the same level, eliminating the need for what now appears to be a shaky relational foundation. So she disintegrates, right? And she reaches for the fruit and she gives some to Adam who eats. And indeed, the serpent is correct. They can now see what God sees. And they can know what God knows. And the weight of the knowledge crushes them. They now have a deficient sense of themselves. Nothing has changed with who they are. The only change is how they can now see. Something is wrong with them that previously didn't concern them at all. They are naked. They are aware of this reality in a way that makes them feel frail and vulnerable and afraid. And yet, before their eyes were opened, this didn't concern them at all. They are now disintegrated from themselves. They see themselves as flawed. And so they sew leaves together to cover themselves. And then they hear the sound of God. Where are you? Adam speaks up and responds by saying that they are afraid because of their nakedness and they hid. And then God says, well, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? They're now disintegrated in their relationship with God. The relationship that was the source of their joy and their security is now a source of fear and anxiety. And yet, even in this moment, God asks a follow-up question. Who told you you were naked? What's the invitation there right then? Repentance. We did it. Truth-telling. So what did Adam do, though? He shifts the blame. It's this woman that you put here. God and the woman are blamed in the response. He could have confessed, he could have came clean, but instead he blames God, he hangs the woman out to dry, which as we read the stories of the Hebrew scriptures in Genesis, you will see this pattern over and over and over again. Men unwilling to stand in the space that they've been called to, and instead putting women in harm's way. The progression from security, I am enough, you are very good, to deficiency, I am not worthy, right? Doubt, ask the question, can I trust God? Distress concludes God cannot be trusted. Disintegration is that I have to find something that's going to fill that void, and then deficiency is I am not worthy. I have nowhere to hide. This is how the humans saw themselves and therefore how they saw God. But God's vision of the humans never changed. Where are you? God's not trying to locate them in the garden. They are, they are, he knows exactly what is going on. My mom knew where we were. She knew what we had done. She was coming to help us acknowledge the reality. The Hebrew is helpful in this. If if we had time, we could sort of get into that. But there's a nuance in the where are you question. It's it's sort of like this. When my beloved Tottenham Hotspurs um, are on the pitch and the first half seems really, really shaky, I might ask the question to the TV, where are they? Now, locationally, they are in London on a soccer field, but something about them hasn't shown up. It's maybe the first eight minutes of the Butler game last night. Where are they? And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, there they are. They're there, but they're not there. And in the the Hebrew, what we get is this lament. (sighs) Where are you? God actually knows what's going on. And in his distress, he cries out, where are you? The question not only gives the humans a a means to return, but it also expresses the sadness of paradise lost. Where have you gone? And so now God speaks to the three main players in the conflict. The serpent is cursed. Literally, he is made to eat dirt. And, and I, I heard some commentator say, in no culture anywhere in the world is that a sign of honor. <laughs> right? When eating dirt is your calling, you have been cursed as far as you can go. Yeah. The serpent, the earth is cursed and the humans are going to reap the consequences of their decision, which is a new nuance for me in that I've always had this sense, uh, and maybe because it was uh, explicitly said, that human beings are, uh, are under God's uh, curse and his anger and his retribution is coming against us. But the text never says that we're cursed there are consequences to the things that we did. It's going to change everything. It is going to be painful for us as we navigate. But that's not because God wants that for us. He didn't show up and give us an extra bit of shame and guilt and uh, a fear of him because we had done uh, We had gone beyond what we were supposed to do. His longing is to be with us. His heart cries out, paradise is now lost, things have changed, and it's a desperate place for him to be. And that's why when we read the curse section in the the, the text, the, the type changes because it's God's lament song for now what is going to happen next. He's lamenting that something has changed. The consequences for the woman... Not the curse of the woman, but rather the result of their lack of trust. Her desire will be for her husband. And there will be an increase in, I'm going to change the word, it's an increase in sorrow. So, again, Hebrew to English, the the process is complicated. And oftentimes there are committees that make decisions on which word goes where. Uh... And so there's voting that happens. And it's a, it's a, it's a very, in, it, it, the, the process has high integrity. But occasionally, we find through scholarship that we may have made a mistake. And there's been some good uh, scholarship on this particular thing. The, here, the simplified version is the word that is used to describe man's curse is toil. And greatly increase pain in childbearing. Pain, same word. So the author is not trying to say, woman, because of the the consequences of your sin, is that it's just going to be really painful for you to have babies. There's going to be sorrow attached to your vocation. Now, I don't know as not being a woman, I don't know how that might shift the way that you think about what's going on, but the the idea here is not that you're getting a double dose of pain now because because of this, but that there there is difficulty and toil and sorrow that is going to be related to the vocation that you're called into, which is being the mother of all creation, and we're going to see that play out in the next story immediately, that it's just... It's just hard on this side of the garden to go about doing the work that we're supposed to go about doing. And then we get Adam, who names his, his wife Eve because she will be the mother of all of the living. And then, as Grace said, God equips them to live life outside of the garden. They're going to exist in an environment that's cursed. It's the opposite of blessing. It's going to be a struggle for them. And God graciously closed them as they leave his presence. And why do they leave? Because they might reach out and take hold of the tree of life and live forever. I've always thought that God was afraid of us to do that. And actually, I think God was being gracious to us. Can you imagine the image bearers having to live forever with the weight of the knowledge of good and evil? In his grace, he guards us from that tree so that we don't have to shoulder the pain that we were never supposed to experience forever. And as I finish this, reading this story again, I'm struck by how low and human my view of God has been. That he's not afraid of us. He's not angry with us. He's not being vindictive or capricious in his punishment. He's lamenting the good things that have been ruined. He knows the difficulty that the humans will face because they didn't trust him. They wanted to be wise on their own and now they are wise on their own and it's not good for them. He doesn't have to do anything to them. There is no piling on. This is simply the consequence of their misplaced desires. And we see immediately the sorrow play out in the second generation because Eve conceives and gives birth to two sons, Cain and Abel. You may know this story. Abel's a shepherd. Cain is working the fields and in the course of time and we don't know why they thought this was necessary but Cain the eldest brother brought an offering of grain and God or brought an offering of grain to God and Abel also brought an offering the offerings are distinguished Abel's is described as the fat portions there's something about Abel's offering that God looks with favor on and with Cain's offering he doesn't look favorably upon his offering but it begs the question how does Cain know that God looked favorably on Abel's offering and not favorably on his own. There's a different relationship set up here. The presence of God in the garden is different now than it was, and so there's a a disconnect between how Cain is processing what's going on in his worship with God and how Abel is processing it, and specifically, how Cain is looking at his brother with an eye of jealousy. There's an enmity there. And so God goes to Cain and he says, "Why are you angry? <laughs> Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, you will not will, will you not be accepted. But if you do not do what is right, look at this. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it." Sin the first time sin appears in the scriptures right there. Um, sin and it it it, it appears personified. It, it's it's got uh, consciousness. It's doing the thing that a, that a lion does before it gets its prey. It's crouching at your door and it desires to have you. you remember the curse of the snake? And, and the offspring of the woman and the serpent will be in conflict. Now we know that the offspring of humans will be humans. There's, there's an obvious line there. Um, but we're wondering, what is the offspring of the serpent? Did the curse really mean that the, there's just going to be uh, a bunch of snakes that are now going to be at odds with the humans? That doesn't seem right, but there has s- some kind of question mark there. Well, what does the offspring of the serpent look like? What, what will that be? And um, we see it play out in this, in this space. We see that the conflict will not be through a bloodline, but rather through the conflict of good and evil. Cain and Abel are both the offspring of Eve, but now there's something that wants to take Cain captive it's sin. And in the Hebrew, the, the text says it literally wants to have you as its own. The offspring of the serpent is lying in wait at the doorstep of Cain's heart. And God says, you don't have to give in. You can trust me and I will lift you up. Do good and you will do well, but do evil and you will become the offspring of sin. And we know what happens and we know what the consequences that follow and the rest of the stories through Genesis 11 are just examples of the effects of sin that are now expanding into the creation. The chaos of human sin will continue to exponentially increase. The enmity between the humans and the offspring of the serpent will continue to grow. And it's interesting that if you're reading the Bible chronologically, you would get to the end of chapter 11 and then the next day you would open the book of Job. The next story that the people of Israel received was a detailed account of the conflict between God's goodness and the adversary who now gets a name, Satan. And we know that Satan is a fallen angel, a spiritual being that is working behind the scenes to take humankind captive. He's the adversary of Eve. So in our flyover of the stories of the beginnings, we've finished. (laughs) Um, We could not explore everything that we wanted to. Um, Hopefully you've been doing some exploring on your own. Um, But what we have seen is how God intended for us to interact with himself and creation and with one another in the beginning. And we know now why it is so difficult to be human. The conflict between goodness and evil are in front of us every day. It plays out in all spheres of human existence. And we know that as far as the, as far as the chaos will reach, the grace and mercy of God will go farther. But the question that we're left with is how do we resolve the problem? Chapter 12, we meet a man named Abram who becomes the father of a new family. And he receives a promise that through his descendants, all nations on earth will be blessed. How will God restore his family through this one man? Well, it won't be Abraham, we find out. This leads us to the gospel turn. And we see how God decided to bless his creation. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through Him, the world did not recognize Him. He came to that which was His own, but His own did not receive Him. Yet, To all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right, look at the bloodline, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the father full of grace god's solution to the problem was new creation The bloodline process needed to be expanded so that all people could experience the goodness of God's love. And so God came to be with us to institute a new way of being human and allowing us to be reborn by his spirit and to return to our true home. That is the invitation of Jesus. God is reversing the effects of the curse. He's renewing his family through a second Adam named Jesus. And eventually the serpent Satan will be crushed from the offspring of Eve. Yep. Actually, his fate's already been sealed, right? The serpents' days are numbered because Jesus has already won the victory over death. And the invitation for us is rebirth into God's family. We can become children of God, exactly who he made us to be. This is the gospel story. And while Genesis tells us what God intended and how that was ruined, Jesus shows us how to get back to the garden. We can return to the original story where we are loved, where we are saved. Where we have a purpose because we are reunited with the God who loves us. The story of the gospel reverses the curse and redeems the consequences of human sin and reconciles us to our created purpose. God offers us a new program in which to live, not scarcity and toil, but abundance and joy. And it's through the church through God's people, that the message of new creation is both experienced and expanded. And so the rest of our series will be a look at how we can take good care of God's good creation. But before we can do that, we need to be reminded of just how good God has taken care of us. Amen? Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for the reminder and the explanation Of the chaos that we find all around us and that that tree that we blame way back there is in all of our closets every morning waiting for us to make a decision and you have equipped us by your spirit to have discernment but even more than that to know what is good But even more than that, to be transformed in order to desire that which is good. Wisdom from on high, not wisdom from below. That transforming work of your Holy Spirit in us. Jesus, we thank you that you came, that you demonstrated for us what an integrated and secure relationship looks like. Not only with the Father, but also with his creation. And that you went away. You said that would be good for us, so that you could send the counselor, the one who would take us by the hand and lead us into all truth. We thank you that you have equipped us for life in the just not quite yet world where we are waiting for full redemption. And we just ask that you would continue to form us as good stewards of your good gifts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In response to hearing the word this morning, let's prepare ourselves for communion by entering into a time of corporate confession. In the activity of confession, we humbly acknowledge our need for God and his ongoing work within us, continuing to transform our whole selves in the image of Jesus. And so as we enter into our time of confession this morning, if you are able, I'd like to invite you to kneel. And join me in praying this prayer. Loving creator, you formed our world with your very breath. We confess we are often uninterested or unwilling. We repent of our sins against you for the ways we have harmed and used your creation for our gain. Forgive us, Lord. For all the ways we have been poor stewards of the world you've entrusted to us, help us to practice the same presence and care as you did, as we seek to honor the gift of our existence. Amen. You may be seated. Our loving God who sent his son not only to reveal himself, but to show us how to be ourselves graciously invites us to return to our vocation as caretakers of the good gifts of creation. Amen. Thanks be to God. As we take part in communion this morning, the elements that we receive remind us of Christ's presence with us and the sacrifice that he offered for God's grace to be experienced among us. The Apostle Paul in Colossians writes, We look at this Son... And see the God who cannot be seen. We look at this son and see God's original purpose in everything created. For everything. Absolutely everything. Above and below. Visible and invisible. Rank after rank of angels. Everything got started in him. And finds its purpose in him. He was there before any of it came into existence and holds it all together Right up to this moment, so spacious is he, so expansive that everything of God finds its proper place in him without crowding. Not only that, but all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe, people and things, animals and atoms, get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonies. All because of his death. His blood that poured down from the cross By giving himself completely at the cross, actually dying for you, Christ brought you over to God's side and put your lives together whole and holy in his presence. After a time of silence and meditation, I'd like to invite you to come to the table as we participate in communion this morning. The elements are here in the front and located out the back doors. When you are ready, the table is open.